You are listening to the Boundless Vancouver Sermon Podcast Series. We pray you experience the deep life and wide love that God has for you today. Hey there, this is Carla Evans at Boundless Vancouver on Sunday, February 28th, 2021. Today we're reading through Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. So if you could push pause and take a minute to read that through and then come back when you're done. Conflict. What happens within you when you hear that word? Do you like conflict? What do you feel like when it erupts in front of you? Do you try to avoid it or maybe you instigate it or simply observe it? Verses 1 to 23 of chapter 7 in Mark are the longest conflict speech in this gospel. Last week, together we practiced entering the scene of a portion of the gospel story, taking in its sights and sounds, paying attention to where we might be in that scene, noticing our feelings, our reactions. What about for this scene? Can you imagine where you might be or how you'd be feeling? I naturally don't like conflict. Maybe my daughter Zoe got that from me because I recall her as a toddler when confronted or corrected, squeezing her eyes so tightly together or turning toward a wall as if she wouldn't be seen so as to escape the conflict. I don't like it when someone is challenged or a hard word is spoken to them. I'd like to slip away quietly and come back later when things are less intense. I imagine myself as one of the disciples in this scene, feeling awkward when Jesus gets into this conflict. This, though, wasn't a conflict that Jesus could avoid. Not that I think he was into avoiding it. Jesus was regularly watched and followed in his ministry and then questioned and confronted, which is not surprising because there was messianic excitement and agitation in Israel in this time, which simply means before as well as after Jesus, there were questions of messiahship, watching and searching, asking of a person, doing the kinds of things Jesus did. Is this the promised messiah or savior? And the tensions were rising. In Mark 2 and 3, we read about Jesus disregarding the Sabbath laws. And then here in chapter 7, he's attacking the traditions about clean and unclean. It's in this chapter that Mark works to clarify the essential purpose of the Torah. The Torah being the written law that God had given to his people. And that this written law was the foundation of morality And it's a matter of inward purity, motive, and intent. So let's explore these two portions of the scripture, the characters, some of the context, and historical significance or background in this story. And then also how we can understand this story today, how it might apply to the way we live as disciples of Jesus. Before we get right into verses 1 to 13, we know Jesus and his disciples were proclaiming the kingdom of God. We've seen that in previous chapters in Mark. They were taking food wherever it was offered and eating with those who offered it. Jesus' ministry was based on the conviction that the arrival of the kingdom of God didn't depend on rituals or rules, but on God's will to bring the kingdom So it was far more important to recognize the kingdom of God and to be ready for it by reordering of one's life, 
not unconforming to the practices of the Pharisees, which were so often concerned with ceremonial actions, including many rules about handwashing, like we've seen in this chapter. Starting with verses 1 to 13, we see it was important in Mark's gospel because early Gentile or non-Jewish Christians would have this as important teaching for their own life and beliefs, especially the question of whether they were obligated to observe Jewish traditions. In verse 3 is the reference to the tradition of the elders. Now we know that God gave the law or Torah to Israel, but there had been developments around that over Israel's history. Over time, extra practices and traditions were developed to help the people ensure they followed God's law. It was like they had put hedges or fences around the written law. And the Pharisees believed this oral law, these extra traditions and rules, held divine authority. But we see Jesus outright rejecting these extra traditions as necessary and telling them that the authority they claim they have from God is actually their own creation. In verse 8, Jesus sees and points out that the tradition of the elders fails to address the heart, and because of this, it fails to represent either the commandment or the will of God. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And this is why Jesus referred to the Pharisees as hypocrites in verse 6, a word meaning to play a part on stage, someone who acts a role without sincerity, a pretender. He's telling the Pharisees that they act as though they care so much about honoring God and following God's way, yet their hearts are not sincere or set on God's kingdom. They claim to be teachers of God's truth and law, but in fact are only teaching human tradition. Then Jesus further condemns the practice of Corban, we see in verse 11, which is when someone dedicates their property as belonging to God. Jesus points out that this tradition was misused to actually cancel the intention of God, which is for children to honor and respect their parents. Corban was being used to enable people to get around their financial obligation to their parents. I thought it would be like saying, oh, sorry, mom and dad, I know you're old now and you're not well and you could use my help and support and care, but ugh, I've promised these things I have to God and I just can't get out of that obligation, so I don't have anything to support you. That is twisted and outside of God's intention. So we move on to look at verses 14 to 23. Before the scribes and Pharisees had arrived to question Jesus, he was speaking to a crowd. But perhaps like me, they slipped away to the side and let that heated conversation ensue. Although I admit, they probably slipped to the side more out of respect than because of conflict avoidance. So now Jesus calls them to come back and says, as recorded in verse 14, Hear me, all of you, and understand which is a sure sign that what he's going to say is very important. Jesus explains what actually makes someone unclean or defiled. His critics believed that uncleanness or defilement worked from the outside in, that unwashed hands defiled the food and the food then defiled the eater. 
Jesus taught the exact opposite. In verse 15, he explains that it is the things that come out of a person that defile them. Now, the disciples don't quite get it, and we know this is typical. But let's be easier on the disciples than we usually are. One commentary I read through this week said that the disciples' incomprehension in Mark can tell us more about Jesus. He's someone whom people find hard to understand and tough to follow. So perhaps the reading audience can take comfort if they too sometimes find discipleship difficult. So hopefully that's reassuring for us today. So the disciples are inside with Jesus, away from the crowd, and they ask him what he meant. In verse 17, and he says, you also don't get it? But gracefully, he takes the time to explain. Whatever enters a person's body from the outside, he says, gets expelled from the body and goes into the latrine. This is some basic biology. Food in, food comes out. And Jesus was actually making a bit of a joke here, some potty humor. But since food enters the stomach and never the heart, which is believed to be the very core and center of the entire being, how could food make someone unclean or polluted or defiled? Foods don't defile a person or make them unclean. And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes on to tell his disciples what does defile a person. He lists things that come out of a person, not things that go into a person. He's telling the disciples that the purity laws point to the real need of humans for a deeper purity, and that is a purity of motive, which comes from the heart. The message version of verses 20 to 23 say, Jesus went on, It's what comes out of a person that pollutes, obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, carousing, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these are vomit from the heart. There is the source of your pollution. Jesus insisted that good and bad external and physical actions come from internal and spiritual sources, and it's the poisoned wells of human motivation that are the real problem. So a life emphasizing the observance of ritual practices runs the risk of ignoring the fact that true impurity in the inner area of human intentions and thoughts. And so, what then? What can be done about this? If the heart is the source of pollution, what do we do about it? Now, interestingly, at this point, Jesus doesn't say, or it's not recorded in this chapter. But as N.T. Wright suggests, the assumption Mark clearly wants us to make is this. Jesus is offering a cure for the problems of the heart, for the springs of motivation that result in wicked thoughts and deeds. I thought we can also take heed from other scriptures that tell us what a pure life in God is like, or a God-directed life is like. In 1 John 5, 3, we read, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Or the popular Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 this is the message version, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. 
And then Paul's words in his book to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, also the message version. The earlier revelation, that is the law, was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. And that sounds like the key to me. Trusting God to shape the right living in us. We know how easy it is to fall into living like the Pharisees, believing that what we might do or the motions we go through, even spiritual practices, assume we are close to Jesus or that we are in holy living. But our hearts may be far from Him. We admittedly can be hypocrites and have hearts that are polluted or with twisted motives. In his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard writes about the danger of even some spiritual activities in the church. And this is what he says about them. So instead of aiding life in vital interaction with the kingdom of God, such activities became and still become exercises in human cleverness and superstition. They do nothing for the growth of our souls in godliness or the progress of God's cause in the word. And he did so, as he did so on many topics, Paul really said the last word on this matter in 1 Corinthians 13.3. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. So we too are left with that word. Jesus is offering a cure for the problems of the heart. There's only one answer, and that is regeneration by the Holy Spirit. There's no power in the world that can make a bad heart good. Only the gospel of Jesus can do that. Our call as followers of Jesus is to trust him who puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. Our call is to trust God to shape the right living in us. Is there something that keeps coming out of you, its source being your heart, that can only be affected and changed by Jesus? Well, these are some encouraging words of truth and promise from 2 Corinthians 5, 16-17. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life emerges. Look at it. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word for the stories that show us how Jesus set things right and set things straight. We want to be made new. We want to shed off the old that is hypocritical and has evil intentions in the heart. We want to live lives that spring out of a well of purity that is given in relationship and dependence on you. Please help us to trust you to shape right living in us. And we thank you for making it possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus for us to have clean hands and pure hearts. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Boundless Vancouver Sermon Podcast. For more messages and contact us, please head to our website, byvr.life.